Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Cricket Lou, along with... Matt Larson. Hello, everyone. And today, it's not just Cricket and me. We have a special guest. We have my good friend and colleague at Dine, Andrew Sullivan. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So we thought that we would take this opportunity with your being here to talk about some of the things that I know you're working on. And one of those I know is the transition of the IANA function from the uh, administration of the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce basically to just ICANN itself, getting the U.S. Department of Commerce out of the loop. And I know that's been taking a, a lot of your time, and I thought it might be interesting to hear your perspective from the inside, as it were. It, it might be worth saying just briefly uh, why Andrew is involved and what his what his role is. Ah, are you doing that in, in your IAB, chair of the IAB capacity? Uh, well, it's part of the reason that uh, I'm paying any attention to it at all, yes. Um, uh, it does take uh, a certain amount of time, and I'm reasonably confident that um, uh, this is something that the IAB is is very interested in the the Internet Architecture Board um, has responsibility for the IANA functions for the oversight of the IANA function uh, at at the IETF. So so we end up um, uh, having to pay attention to it, and as a result, I, I got hauled into this uh, into this topic. Yep. So let's let's talk about what the IANA function is first. So it's it's really coordinating primarily three things: right, protocol parameters, um, IP address space. And the one that seems to get all the attention, uh, the domain name space, and in particular, top-level domains. Right. Uh, so the, the the internet is, of course, as everybody knows, a, a really widely distributed system. Um, but for convenience, mostly, we've set up um, some of these fundamental systems with a central coordination place. So in the case of protocol parameters, like, for instance, port 53 for DNS, uh, port 80 for HTTP, um, you know, we write those down in one place so that people can look them up easily and so that we don't have to rewrite a new RFC if we wanted to change something or, or add a new one. Um, and so that's a sort of a convenience function. And the place that we store that is, is the IANA, the um, uh, Internet Assigned Numbers Authority. And uh, similarly, uh, for, for the top level of, um, of IP addresses and, and also autonomous system numbers, um, we we have a central place for that, and that allows the, um, the the these assignments to be handed out to the various regional internet registries, who then coordinate and and, and assign the numbers um, according to the region that they they work in. And then finally, somebody needs to um, somebody needs to be the, uh, the the repository for the for the root zone of the DNS. Um, this is not the operation of the root zone, but but somebody needs you know, essentially to be the master uh, copy of that and to make the decisions about where it's going to be published. And so the decisions are the policy function, and that is that is ICANN, uh, just like the ITF is the policy function for the protocol parameters and the RIR is the policy function for, for IP addresses. But the, the function of just storing the values is IANA, and that's also done by ICANN. So why don't we talk about kind of where I, IANA came from? I mean... Originally, I mean, as long as there's been an Internet, there's needed to be those functions, or at least somebody has had to determine, well, all right, this is the list of 
top-level domains that are in existence, and somebody has had to remember that port 53 is for DNS and so on. And originally that was John Postel at the uh, at, at ISI, part of USC, and and also Joyce Reynolds, as you as you pointed out off air, and. So really, on the strength of their personalities, this function got started, and people respected them and their authority, and it it just worked with a handshake, basically, for a long time. And then it was the U.S. government sort of asserting its authority in the late 90s as the Internet got uh, more and more commercialized and people began to rely on it to make real money that it was realized that it wasn't going to work in this informal fashion anymore and that there had to be some rigor, and that led to the creation of ICANN and the U.S. government stepping up and saying, hey, look, we, <laughs> we paid for this, this whole Internet thing, <laughs> and, uh, and so we're, we're going to assert that we have authority over these functions that make up the IANA, and uh, we are designating ICANN as the administrator of these functions, and there was a, an agreement, a cooperative agreement, I believe it was, right? That, that's right, and, and that's the way that it has worked um, uh, since, since the late 1990s. Um, ICANN has operated uh, IANA under a contract, um, and in particular, that contract has, has been just a contract between ICANN and um, the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce through the NTIA National Information no National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Um, so, so the the contract um, is is really just between the U.S. government and um, and ICANN. And then there are um, a, a additional um, mechanisms. For instance, the IETF has a memorandum of understanding with ICANN in order to have ICANN do the IANA operations for the IETF. And, and so there are, you know, these various informal and formal mechanisms that have been um, built up over time. And the, uh, a little over, well, not quite two years ago now, um, the U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Commerce announced that it was going to get out of this business and, um, and, you know, hand things over to the community to operate in exactly the way that was always intended. This was, this was always part of the plan, and, and now they're getting around to it. So it's, it's good that it, it is happening. It's a little unfortunate, perhaps, that it's taking quite as long as it is, but um, uh, we're, we're gradually getting there. Hmm. And, and I'm realizing I misspoke when I said cooperative agreement. I mean, maybe nobody cares, but it was actually a, uh, it's just a different kind of contracting vehicle. And it's a cooperative agreement that VeriSign has with uh, NTIA to do its functions related to the root zone. Nothing related to the IANA functions directly, but instead to be the um, what's come to be called the root zone administrator, the entity that actually creates and publishes the root zone. Right. Yeah, and there of course, are a lot of, as if oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, and if that isn't confusing enough, VeriSign uh, wears two hats in this whole process, and it is not only the root zone administrator, but then it runs uh, two of the thirteen root server letters, A and J root. Yeah, there there are a lot of different um, a lot of different actors uh, in 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 these various pieces of it, and it's. Sometimes confusing to people, I think, looking at it because they know that ICANN um, has this role and they think ICANN runs it. But ICANN itself has more than one role here, right? On the one hand, it's doing the IANA operations, and that's a pretty narrow thing. It's important. It's a critical uh, function, sort of like a land registry or something like that. And so it doesn't really have a lot of um, a lot of political control over what it's doing. What it has is the ability. 
uh, to publish these things, and and a very competent um, group of of people who just perform this function, and that's all they do. And then there is also within ICANN, there is the policy uh, decisions around the root zone, like, for instance, who gets a new TLD, what new TLDs are allowed, under what process are you going to, um, you know, launch new TLDs, as we've been seeing over the last couple of years. And all of those are really the policy mechanisms, and they happen within the ICANN community. So it's not always clear to everybody that there are these two different functions and they're living within the same organization. And all we're talking about is changing the, f the first uh, that I mentioned, that, that clerical basically function that um, uh, writes these things down once the policy has been made. It's a really important function. I don't want to minimize it. Um, but, you know, I made the analogy with the land registry. The land registry office in your municipality or, or state or province or wherever you live, um, it, it, it's a really important function because that's how people get mortgages and that's how you know who owns a piece of land or whatever. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not a particularly powerful organization. It's supposed to be politically neutral, right? You, you don't want... You don't want the politicians sort of coming in and deciding, nope, nope, those deeds are all out of date and we're going to change them over to here. It's a different kind of function. And that's the sort of function that we're talking about. Right. I think that there is, um, in some reporting, for example, the tendency to conflate management of the root zone with control of the Internet, which uh, to, to technical people who work on DNS seems pretty ludicrous. I, I agree. I think that that is a... Uh, it's it's an easy confusion to make if you're not used to the way um, that we think about the internet. I mean, you know, geeks who work on the internet, we're we're used to this idea of this kind of compartmentalization. We have the the seven layer model uh, or the nine layer model, if you're a little more cynical, uh, and uh, we have these ideas of the little pieces, and they work together in various ways. Um, it isn't that isn't always the the picture I think that people have. You know, they they have the idea of the internet as this one big monolithic system um, that you connect to, and of course the the internet is actually designed to minimize that kind of central point of control, which is what makes um, things like the root zone and so on so so strange in some ways because they do have this really important location in in the internet, even though. For most practical purposes, it's not a thing that you uh, you need to worry about most of the time. The root zone, for instance, is really widely copied. Uh, it's on all of those various root servers, um, and it just runs. And in fact, you can make a copy of it and run it yourself if you want, because you have DNSSEC, so you know you have the um, the right copy. And so all of these things uh, work together in a w in a way that is really distributed. But the the popular conception, I think, of the internet is one of a one large system that is operated with a central control, and that's you know the the narrative that we get a lot of the time. And and so people think that changing the IANA function, for instance, is giving away the internet when it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a group of people of which you are one that is figuring out how to do this, and you all have been meeting for some time, and like sort of, wh where is it at? How's it going? What's the timetable? So the, the actual pieces that are necessary to, um, uh, to, to do this transition away from the U.S. government, those are, strictly speaking, ready. Um, the, the three operational communities, um, the ITF, the RIRs, and, and ICANN, um, they all came up with um, individual proposals for how to do the, the uh, um, 
oversight of this IANA function for each community. Uh, and that was all put together by this um, uh, IANA coordination group, uh, the IANA transition coordination group. And, and so they have a, a unified proposal that's ready to go, and everybody seems to have consensus on it, and it's ready to ship. But within the ICANN piece, because of those two um, functions that are, are sort of a little bit commingled uh, in the current organization, there was a feeling that some additional accountability changes were also necessary. And so there was a group also working towards accountability changes for ICANN, that is, how do you keep the board um, to ensure that the board is, in fact, you know, following public interests and so on. And that part is not quite done. It, it's a little bit, it's running a little bit late and, uh, you know, we're well into uh, 2016 and we thought that we would have shipped this um, proposal, this unified proposal, uh, off to the NTIA for completion uh, last year, but we didn't do it. So the, the accountability group is continuing to work, and it's just about done. Um, and once that is all together, it can be bound together in this one unified proposal that the NTIA can consider and uh, make sure that um, the proposal actually meets all of the criteria that the NTIA laid out in their original announcement. And then this uh, transition can proceed. The, the, the time is, is getting short because um, we're late in the cycle. The, the current contract between ICANN and the NTIA expires uh, at the end of September this year. And it's important, of course, that, that this transition happen at the time of the expiry of a contract so that we don't have to write you know, a new contract just to do the transition and so on. And the other thing about it, of course, is that there is a um, a political component to this. It's a it's an election year in the United States, and uh, there will be a new administration starting next year, um, whatever the outcome of the election is, because the current administration is not up for re-election. And so, once that happens, new people will take over, and there will be. Uh, differences in the kinds of things that they're interested in, and, and we might not actually get to see uh, this transition if we don't get through it this year. So it, it's it's a delicate time. I, I believe that we can still get this completed, but I also think that um, if we want this to happen, we better be prepared to work hard uh, for the rest of this year, or it could all, you know, fail. From a, from a practical standpoint, um, for listeners who are, are mainly administrators of name servers, administrators of zones, um, it's probably worth pointing out that this is all kind of behind the scenes and they shouldn't really notice anything different, right? In practice, um, assuming we've done this correctly, there will be no detectable difference whatsoever. Uh, this is really about um, the, the relationship of the IANA function and, and therefore, to a small extent of the Internet, um, uh, to, to governments, and there are you know many people who have resented I think the uh, position of the United States government in this for a long time, uh, for uh, country code top level domains for instance. What this always meant was that there was this this formal approval that had to happen every time they wanted to change a name server of a country code TLD. Um, you know they had to get sign off from the U.S. government, and that tended to rankle a little bit. We, ne we never used the A word. We never used approval at various time. We always said authorization. I, I believe you're right. I believe that it's <laughs> authorization and not approval. Um, but, you know, for uh, from the point of view of a, of a, of a non-U.S. government, I'm sure that the distinction is a nice one, but maybe not that important. Yeah, Cricket, I think your point's well taken. For the average person, 
this isn't <laughs> this isn't going to mean anything. So I suppose as I listen to us talk, this really is inside baseball for people who are interested in sort of the intersection of DNS and internet governance politics. Right. But um, well, some would argue that the entire podcast is inside baseball. <laughs> Well, that's true. We're just a little deeper down the rabbit hole this yeah. time. There is one thing that I would say, though, and, and that is um, if, if this goes well and, and proceeds in the direction that I believe it, it's going, uh, then, then you're right. Nobody will notice and, and will proceed, and, and it will make no difference whatsoever. If it fails, however, there's been a lot of expectation that has been built and uh, you know, people expect the um, th this transition to happen. And now, if it doesn't, there will be people who use this as evidence that the the traditional way we've made decisions on the internet, with multiple stakeholders coming and and you know, voluntary participation and so on, mm. some some people will take that as evidence that that kind of way of working simply doesn't work. And that we should turn this over to professionals in governments and, um, you know, international treaty organizations and so on, and, and stop having these amateurs run the Internet. And I think that that would be a very bad change. I, I think that the Internet works the way it does and has scaled the way it does because people come together according to the interests of their own network. It, it's a network of networks. And, and therefore, it's important that we operate in, in this way according to the way the, the network works. It gets built, and I think that there there is a danger of failure here. That um, maybe some people haven't fully internalized yet. That that worries me a little bit more. Well, and you could argue that well, okay, so, so what? That's that's one set of people who go to meetings to run the internet, handing it over to another set of meetings, people who go to meetings to run the internet. Who cares? But I think there's a very real risk then of something that absolutely everyone would notice, which is fracturing of the namespace. Mm -hmm. You know, this the, the DNS only works to state the obvious because we all agree on the namespace. We all agree that the root zone that's produced by this process is the definitive list of TLDs, and that holds everything together. But if we ever got to the point where, where people said, oh, forget it, I just can't, you know, I can't deal with this, we could have a fracturing of the namespace, and then you'd have a real trouble. You could have it so that, you know, oh, which DNS are you using? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't get email to you. I have to go through, you know, I mean, what, a, what a nightmare. Yes, exactly. Well, speaking of namespaces, I know that ties into something else that you're working on. We don't want to have you just talk all politics here, because those of us who know you know that you're also quite technical. So uh, wearing your IAB hat, there's this uh, boff coming up about namespaces in uh, Buenos Aires, right? Uh, yeah. So maybe partly because of um, uh, the, the expansion of the root zone uh, over the past couple of years, and, and also because of you know, various privacy concerns that have shown up and so on, uh, a number of different systems for resolving names on the internet have started to crop up. Um, and, and the DNS has never been the only naming system on the internet, of course. I mean, we all know about the hosts file and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, there are older um, types of systems, um, NetBIOS names and all of that kind of thing. So these have always been on the internet. Um, but the DNS has been sort of overarching. Um, Lately, we've run into uh, a few changes, and, and it's become obvious that actually there's a, there's a whole set of um, possible uh, naming contexts, and if you don't know which one you're in, you can you can trip over one another. Because um, some of them look similar. They, many of them look very similar, and and so recently, for instance, the um, 
the the IETF approved a special top level domain um, onion uh, in order to uh, to carve out a little bit of space for the Tor network, which uses um, ha has been using the onion top level domain or non top level domain for a long time. So they use these names and they all end in onion and they look like DNS names. And the reason for that is so that they will fit into um, you know, browsers and other such things that are looking for domain names. Um, but, but you need to know what, which context you're, um, you're looking up the name in, or else you use the wrong kind of resolver. And this is turning out to be uh, a little bit harder than we thought. Um, naming on the internet is, is ast astonishingly complicated once you start to look at it. And it's become clear that we need to figure out um, these, these sorts of contexts. So at the next uh, IETF meeting in Buenos Aires, um, which is going to happen at the beginning of April, uh, we have this um, uh, BOF, the Alternative Resolution Contexts for Internet Naming, or ARCing, uh, and we're going to um, try to talk about this and sort of figure out what we can do in order to um, in order to, to give that kind of context information to applications so they know what sort of thing they ought to be doing. Well, something to look forward to for those of us who will be yeah. Are you are you going cricket? I'm going to be there for the ORC meeting before and into the week, uh, uh, the IETF week, but not staying the whole week. I, Andrew, I don't, <laughs> I know better than to ask you. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid I don't get to get away. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I hadn't planned on going, but uh, the more I hear about it, the more it sounds like a good idea to go. So maybe I will try to make it. Yeah, well, the ORC meetings have been really good. Lately. Yeah, I've been very pleased with all the ORC meetings that I've attended. Yeah. Well, so Andrew, thank you for that. Um, I appreciate the insight, and it's good to hear about some politics and some <laughs> some technical stuff. But uh, there could be there could be listeners screaming at their iPhone, wanting us to dip into the mailbag and answer some questions. There could be. There could be. So maybe we should. We have we have a little bit in the mail in the mailbag. It's. You can see the bottom of the mailbag, but it's not completely empty. So why don't we, why don't we dip into it? And I, I'll ask the first question here. This is from uh, Sheridan J. West, and he asks, uh, I'm going to kind of paraphrase here because of the length of his, uh, of his question, but he said he recently turned on security logging on his name server, and he's using a, a third-party package called Fail2Ban. That's the, the number two. And he quoted some log lines for us that he's getting uh, some bind log lines and he's wondering, you know, where, where's this coming from? He hadn't seen this before. Is it, is it bad? He's just sort of asking what, what's the deal. And of course, a podcast is not at all suited to uh, sharing information about bind logging messages. But I think the operative thing in these, in these logs is that it, it shows uh, source IP addresses and ports and domain names. And then it says query cache and denied. So those, those are the log lines. Clearly, his name server is refusing to answer certain kinds of queries, and he's asking, uh, what's up? And, and he points out at the very end of the message that the IP addresses are in China and in the Seychelles. So uh, I think the, the uh, inference there is that um, could these guys be up to no good, <laughs> particularly, I suppose, the Chinese. I don't, I don't know if we have any reason to suspect the Seychelles as being a hotbed of malicious Internet activity. Um, do, they, do they even have 
What kind of connectivity do they have? I, say shots. I, I, don't, I don't know, honestly. I, I imagine almost everywhere has some sort of internet connectivity nowadays, but given their remoteness and the fact that, uh, that they're islands, right, <laughs> it's, it's probably yeah. not particularly high speed. Unless you get a cable passing through you. That's trouble. right. That's right. Well, there were a couple of things that I noticed when looking at these log messages. One is that the first one, the first log message is, um, it's a lookup of dnsscan.shadowserver.org. Um, in particular, the address record for dnsscan.shadowserver.org that was denied. And uh, Shadow Server, those are, those are white hats. Those are our guys who... Uh, compile internet threat data, among other things. And so I would imagine that that is simply uh, a, a routine shadow server scan, although I, I, I'd want to double check the, the source IP address. They might just be trying to map the internet, looking around for um, uh, which name servers are responding and a little bit of information about how they're configured. Now, of course, Sheridan may, may think that that's, to him, malicious and may decide that uh, he doesn't you know, he doesn't appreciate that kind of activity either, in which case he can always contact the guys at Shadow Server, I suppose. Um, a after that, there are a series of queries that are queries for uh, cpsc.gov's any records, and uh, those were all denied because uh, his name server is not, in fact, authoritative for cpsc.gov. Uh, given that there are all these queries for cpsc.gov, the first thing I checked to see is whether maybe somebody accidentally delegated cpsc.gov to his name server and someone is someone's recursive name server is simply following delegation and querying his name server. Um, if not that, then uh, it, he's right. It might be something that's uh, a little more nefarious. Um, but uh, his ACL uh, clearly blocked that. He has an ACL, I suppose, on either access to his cache or, uh, or, or something like that, because he's, his name server is not authoritative for cpsc.gov and is therefore refusing those queries. Does that make, Seems does that make sense? Those were the, those were the, uh, the main possibilities that, uh, that I could think of. Yeah, and you, you pointed out off the air, Cricket, that... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a recent by nine thing. I don't I don't know when, but that you know we now have a lot of query cache. And back when you and I were paying the mortgage with DNS consulting and training, which you realize was a really really long time ago, <laughs> it was. <laughs> I have a poster here in my office that my wife made me uh, a long time ago uh, with the the logo blown up huge for Acme Byte and Wire, the company that some people may remember that. Uh, that Cricket and I founded, and, and we started it January 1st, 1997. Wow. So I, I look at that every now and then. I'm reminded how old I am. But uh, but anyway, I remember we used to tell people um, for authoritative servers uh, that you didn't intend to have recursion on, there was no query cache, allow query cache. So what you had to do if you didn't want people sort of messing around in your, you know, what cache there, there might be or, or, or anything stray in your name server, um, you, you had to say, uh, allow, you said allow query, no, you had, a, you, had a, you had a global ACL for no, and then you turn it on on a zone-by-zone -zone basis. Is that right? That's right. So for all the zones you were authoritative for, you said allow query any, but your global allow query, uh, yeah. the one in the option substatement, was allow query none. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot easier to do allow query cache. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. Um, Andrew, anything to say on that one? No, I think that, uh, oh, oh, well, I do have one observation, and that is that uh, uh, the location of the IP addresses, of course, might just be based on the uh, who is data for the IP addresses, in which case the IPs themselves may not be in the Seychelles. Uh, it might just be the owners that are. Mm, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah I have to say, I, I know a lot more about IP geolocation uh, working at Dyne, and since Dyne acquired Renesis over a year and a half ago, uh, that, than I did. It, it turns out to be um, quite a complicated thing to do, as you might guess. And you know, we've done bake-offs among the various uh, different commercial providers, and and they're they're all terrible in their in their own ways. <laughs> and and what we have is a bunch of proprietary techniques uh, that we overlay on top of that. So you know, one thing Dyn has is pretty cool is is really good IP geolocation, at least for infrastructure stuff. So if I only I'm not doing this on my Dyn laptop. If I were, I could dazzle everyone with exact locations of those IP addresses, no doubt. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Well, we do have one other question. Uh, this one came in from Jeff Hellman. And uh, he says, hey, guys, apologies in advance for how noob this question will be. I know this is a common scenario, but my Google search results are failing me. He says, I want my blog content to be hosted in one place, my app via an app subdomain uh, hosted in another place, and landing pages hosted in a third place. I currently have my blog content at some domain root slash blog to avoid the dilution of search juice by using a blog subdomain, but I'm not wedded to this notion. How do I do this? I know or think A records and C name records are involved, but I hit a wall when I try to point domain root to one place, then try to also keep blog content at domain root slash blog. Many thanks for your help. Well, I, I think this one might be really more of a question for Mr. Apache than Mr. Uh, Mr. DNS. Yes. <laughs> uh, because it's, it, I think it's fundamentally a, uh, a question about configuring a web server, but lurking in here is, is uh, not only some DNS issues, but sort of the job we've managed to do uh, to make it complicated for regular people to understand what's involved with, with using the web. Yeah, he, he, if, if what Jeff wants to do is to have these various sites disambiguated by something to the right of the slash in the URL, then that's not the job of DNS anymore. DNS is only, only has domain, if you will, <laughs> over the stuff to the left of that first slash. So if he wants that uh, domain root slash blog or domain root slash app or domain root slash whatever to point to something different, that, that's all uh, the, the purview of web server configuration and would probably be handled by having one main web server, a, a kind of a front door web server, issue some sort of HTTP redirect to, uh, to redirect um, web clients to other web servers, right? Right, or, or potentially virtual hosts on the same same server. Yeah, although I got the feeling that, that he was actually talking about multiple servers on the back end, like he had a special sort of uh, blog infrastructure maybe that was hosted by a particular company that did that and an app that was hosted elsewhere. 
Yeah, in which case that's that's definitely a, a redirect from the quote-unquote main server. Right. So. If he was willing to do that to the left of that first slash, if he was willing to have a blog.domain and an app.domain and things like that, of course, DNS could handle that and it could map each of those different domain names to a different IP address or a different set of IP addresses, and, and that would work out fine. So, Andrew, once again, Cricket and I are doing what we usually do, which is thrash at the question until we've decided there's... <laughs> Nothing else to say. Any so, so you can be a breath of fresh air here. Any what's your perspective on this? Oh, well, this is actually um, exactly the sort of thing that we are uh, t- trying to talk about, or, or anyway, a piece of what we're trying to talk about uh, at the BOF that we mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast. So the, the the issue here is really that there's more than one context for the name of a thing because a URI is is a name of uh, of a well, a location, right? So what you're trying to do is find, um, find this resource on the, on the Internet, and it turns out that the way you find it is first you have to find the machine that it's on, that's the host part, and then you've got to find the path that it's in, and that's the, the rest of the URI. And in order for people to understand this sort of thing, they now have to have a sort of theory of operation of the entire Internet um, just in order to understand how to configure their web servers. Uh, and so that's not a very user-friendly um, sort of mechanism. It's it's a little bit akin to the way driving was. Oh, I don't know, in the 1920s, where you had to carry a you know a toolkit with you all the time, and you had to crank the car to start it over, and so on. And and I think that what we're really trying to do uh, in these sorts of efforts is try to make it uh, a little bit easier for mere mortals to understand when they name something what exactly happens. Right, or they just use an app. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not. I, I'm saying that only half jokingly. I mean, how many domain names do you see uh, on your iPhone? Yeah, so very, very few. And 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 for most users, that they do see them, it, it's quite confusing. I think that one of the things about about the domain name system is that it's gradually becoming a piece of infrastructure underneath everything. So instead of it being something that that users are exposed to all the time. People who are trying to operate any sort of infrastructure still need to have a, a picture about this, and yet they um, uh, they have decreasingly frequent um, opportunities to uh, to encounter domain names. Really, the only place that you see them very much anymore, especially if you access the internet only via mobile devices, is in email addresses. That's that's more or less all you ever see. Maybe you see a, a website on the side of a bus or something, but that's about it. And uh, and yet the DNS becomes more important because people are using it as an infrastructure piece, like IP addresses and so on, underneath all of this um, all of this app infrastructure. So it's um, it, it means that it's harder for people who are trying to enter the, um, the internet and trying to learn how to do things on it uh, to get experience with it because they don't have any um, any experience with uh, the underlying concepts the way that you know maybe in the 1990s you saw these things a little more often you maybe came to some appreciation of how the different parts worked. Yep, it's it's going to be interesting as uh, you know we get more and more people using the internet who just. I suppose it's possible there are going to be people who you know won't have even much experience with a web browser, right? And and it, the the idea of using a domain name is just going to be less and less a part of their user experience. Whereas you know I, I used to hear people say, "Well, is, is DNS going away?" Well, absolutely not. Something we need that level of indirection, right? But but there's nothing that says it has to be human friendly or or you know use, usable by humans. Yeah. 
which I think is your point. Uh, well, I think that's right. Uh, if you think about the history of um, of the DNS and you know how old it is, uh, it was designed um, in an environment where everybody on the internet knew each other, and um, they were all geeks who were also building the internet. There there weren't any there weren't any non technical users on the internet in the very earliest days. And that naturally means that the interfaces are are ones that are comfortable for somebody who uh, who has a, a computer science background. So, um, you know, a hierarchical namespace um, is exactly the sort of thing you would expect, um, you know, Unix geeks to have come up with. It's a natural <laughs> thing to do, but yep. nobody else in the universe thinks this is a good idea. And so, <laughs> and so we've ended up with a, a system that doesn't map very naturally to human language. But it maps really naturally to what um, uh, computer scientists think like. And I think that what we're seeing gradually is we're putting overlays atop that, um, but the underlying infrastructure works the same way. And so uh, people who are coming to the Internet now, the, the, the growth in, in new subscribers to the Internet is in mobile devices. In the developing world, a lot of people are coming online who only have access on a mobile device because that's where their bandwidth comes from. Um, and and so we'll see more and more people who are encountering the internet and using it without actually uh, without actually having any idea of the underlying uh, underlying concepts. And I think this has important consequences for the DNS because you know we end up turning into a, an indirection layer, as you said, for the infrastructure. Um, but we we stop being such a, a user visible um, component of what of what people experience online. Yeah, tell that to all the. Uh New TLD. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we are uh, we're at that golden time for podcast length of around half an hour. Although I think we're a little over, um, so we should probably wrap it up. But wanted to say thank you again to Andrew for enlightening yes, us. Yes, thanks very much for joining us, Andrew. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, I will end with our usual plea for questions. Uh, I, I think I think it's the case that we have never resorted to making up a question, have we, Cricket? I, I don't think we ever uh, have. Not that they can prove, no. That's right. So, it, uh, no, in all honesty, these are like actual questions that people send us. But there are times where we look at the bottom of the mailbag and there's nothing there. So we really do need your help to uh, to keep answering questions because you don't want us making them up. Uh, so please send us your questions at uh, MrDNS, MRDNS, at ask-mrdns.com. And so until next time, thanks. Bye-bye.